Um, it's from Numbers. It's quite a long chunk of scripture, but it's narrative, so you get to kind of follow the story and see the ins and outs of what goes on for the Israelites. Um, we are reading from Numbers chapter 14, and we're going to read verse 1 up to verse 38. Uh, feel free to follow along just on the screen. Otherwise, if you have a phone you want to use to follow along, feel free to do that too. So Numbers chapter 14 from verse 1. Um, and if just as a bit of context, if you weren't here last week, what's just happened before this is the is uh, sorry, God has told the Israelites he's going to take them to the promised land. Some scouts from the Israelites go and explore the land. They realize it's full of lots of people. They get a bit freaked out, so they come back and tell the Israelites, oh, no, 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 don't, let's not go there because there's lots of scary people and they might kill us. Um, basically failing to trust God. So this is just after they've come back and given the bad report. This is what happens next. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly said to them, if only we'd died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, the land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power, you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, Lord, are with these people, and that you, Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and that you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath, so he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, Forgive the sin of these people just as you've pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. 
Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me 10 times, not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and the Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who was counted in the census and who has grumbled against me. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with, uplift, I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joseph, son of Nun. As for your children, that you said would be taken as plunder, I will bring them into the land you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this wilderness. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to the whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here, they will die. So the men Moses had sent to explore the land, who returned and made the whole community grumble against him by spreading a bad report about it, these men who were responsible for spreading the bad report about the land were struck down and died of a plague before the Lord. Of the men who went to explore the land, only Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, survived. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we are exceptionally uh, not having Inner West kids today, um, but any kids I think are already out the back. There is our um, space out the back where hopefully the sermon is audible and lots of toys and maybe we're trying to solve that problem right now. <laughs> Um, lots of toys and games and things for them there. Um, Pete is going to come up and bring us God's word, but just as he does that, let me pray for us now. Uh, God, um, as we come to this somewhat challenging passage of scripture, we come with questions, we come with doubts, um, and we just pray that you would show us more of who you are today, that you would give us understanding of your character Give us understanding of what it looks like to trust you um, and have faith in you. God, would you be with Pete and speak uh, to us through him? Would he speak um, with spirit and truth? Uh, we commit this time to you now in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, friends, we are rollicking through the book of Numbers. And anyone who thought it was a boring book full of facts and figures is partly right. But actually, after about chapter 10, it gets really interesting. And so here we are in Numbers 14. Uh, recently, I've been returning to my childhood nostalgia 
uh, by re-watching the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, I started with The Temple of Doom, which is really scary and totally inappropriate for kids, by the way, uh, and then moved through uh, to uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark via, and then finally to the, the favourite, the best of the trilogy, The Last Crusade, with Sean Connery playing uh, Henry Jones, Indy's dad. Uh, in his search for the Holy Grail, Indiana Jones ends up facing three final challenges, you might remember, as he enters into the temple where the, the, the Grail is being kept. Um, he beats the first trap, which is the whizzing blades. You remember, the penitent man may pass. He bows down and gets through. The second test was even more difficult. He had to take a step of faith out into a seemingly sheer ravine. And as he takes the step, he hears his father's uh, words echoing back down from the passage where he lies bleeding out, actually. Believe. Believe, Indy. Believe. And he steps out and his foot lands on a hidden, invisible, camouflaged bridge. And everyone takes a big breath out. Well, watching that scene as a kid, uh, two questions immediately struck me. The first was, why didn't he just put one foot out and just kind of put his toe down? And that seemingly would have made a lot of sense. Uh, but the second one was, if I was in his shoes, if I was Indiana Jones, would I have taken that step into the void? Would I have believed? Uh, Indy's choice... Actually, a lot of his journey kind of parallels the story of the Israelites as they approached the land of Canaan. This is a story that started back in the book of Exodus, and it's been all about God proving his intentions to Israel. He has promised that he would be there with them, for them, guiding them, leading them, protecting them. That through the harsh, endless wilderness, yes, they would be tested, but if they just believed, then God would come through for them. And eventually he would bring them through the wilderness to the land of promise, to Canaan. The wilderness journey is a time of testing. Not of God's faithfulness, actually, because God will always come through, but of Israel's. Would they, when faced with danger and lack, trust him? Would they continue to take one step of faith after the other? Here in Numbers uh, 13 to 14, they're invited, like Indy, to take that step of faith, to move out into the promised land, confident that God would help them overcome any obstacle. And as we go with them, as we follow this story, we're asked the same question that I asked of Indy in the last crusade. If we were in their shoes, if we were Israel, would we take that step? Would we believe? Before we get there, uh, let's just clear something up really quickly. Uh, when we're talking about Christian faith, we're never talking about blind faith. Some people talk about that. One of the big objections against Christianity, oh, you Christians, you, just, you're, you believe in blind faith. You just unquestionably assent to whatever the Bible says and you know, don't even think about it any more than that. People say, just have faith, just believe. 
But Israel's faith and our faith is never blind, actually. Most of us don't have advanced aerospace engineering knowledge, right? I don't think. But uh, we happily entrust ourselves to gigantic tin cans to shoot ourselves across the sky. Why? Because we trust in the airline's reputation. We trust in the pre-flight safety checks made by the mechanics and engineers. And most of all, we trust the experience of the pilot. In the same way, God invites us to entrust ourselves to him, to save us from death and give us his life because we trust, not blindly, but in the track record of Jesus, that his life, death and resurrection, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the history of the church is evidence of God's faithfulness to us. We trust in the reputation of God and so our faith is still faith. It still requires belief in something beyond what we can understand, beyond what we can see. But it's not blind faith, it's reasonable faith. And so as we journey through life, there will come all sorts of tests of that faith. Opportunities, moments in life where we will either believe or not. Have faith or not. Trust or not. And so in order to cultivate belief, in order to become the sort of people who do indeed take the step of faith, we first have to understand the dynamics of unbelief. What makes you not believe? And to do that, we're going to look at three things. We'll look at the conditions that form unbelief, the consequences that come from it, and the way to combat it. The conditions, the consequences and combating. Let's start with the conditions. Let's just recap uh, quickly where we left off last week again. Um, Israel has arrived within spitting distance of Canaan. It hasn't been that long a journey, and now they, are, they can see it. It's literally maybe a day or so march away. And so God commanded that some men be sent out to scope out the land. And they agree that the land is, as God promised, incredibly fertile. And they say it flows of milk and honey. Probably not literally, because that would be kind of weird. But uh, metaphorically, it's a land which is just wonderful. Uh, but the people who live there are as formidable as the land is fertile. Uh, they are giant people, warriors, soldiers, and they will not take kindly to the arrival of outsiders. And so out of this comes two reports. Caleb spoke up and said, we should take the land. But the majority of the spies had a very different take. We can't attack those people. We are like grasshoppers in their eyes and in our own eyes. And so coming to chapter 14, it's the majority report, the bad report, that captures the heart's of the people of Israel. Uh, come with me to verse 1. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? 
Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're so close. They've come all this way. They've seen so much. And now literally on the cusp of the promised land, gripped by fear, they want to go back to Egypt, back to slavery. And so again, we hear this word that's come up too many times in Numbers, grumbling. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And it's particularly frustrating here when they're right on the edge of the end of their journey. From our point of view, it might seem just ridiculous. Notice the one thing that's missing from the bad report. God. God's missing. Hadn't he proved his strength enough times? Hadn't he done enough miracles, enough wonders? Weren't the ten plagues enough of Egypt? Wasn't the Red Sea parting enough? The manna, the quail, the water from the rock, miraculous victories. So logically, it seems, are these giant people in Canaan any harder for God to overcome than all the other obstacles? Of course, none of us would suffer from such terrible memory. None of us here would have that problem of selective memory. None of us here would have such problem with such lack of faith, of course. Except we do, don't we? Uh, Jeff Vanderstelt, in his book, Gospel Fluency, starts the book with this claim, I'm an unbeliever, and so are you. We have places in our lives where we don't believe God. There are spaces where we don't trust his word is true or his work is sufficient. Let that sink in for a moment. Let it resonate with your own experience. I'm an unbeliever, and so are you. Don't we know that our God is a generous Father who will always provide for our needs, who went so far as to give his only Son to die for our peace and safety? And yet, we know that. And yet, how often our anxiety, our worry, our envy and greed betrays the truth? We don't always believe it. And don't we know that we're completely forgiven for all our sins? That there's no condemnation in for those who trust in Christ. And yet we struggle to believe God would really forgive it all. And we struggle even more to forgive ourselves. We don't always believe it. And don't we know that God is for us, that he'll never leave us nor forsake us? For how could he forsake the people that his son died to bring home? And yet so often... Our actions show the truth that we trust instead in our own power and strength to shore up security for ourselves. We know it, but we don't always believe it. Why don't we believe these things often when they matter most? Well, we tend to think of ourselves as logical and rational beings. We're smart and educated, and we make decisions based on logic and knowledge. We take up the, the mantra of our societies. Like, I, I think, therefore I am. I exist because I think, because I know, because I learn. 
But if we're honest, we probably know at some level that that's not true. I know, because I've watched the Gruen transfer, that marketing campaigns are perfectly designed to play with my own tendencies towards envy and greed. I know it. And yet they still work. They still make me buy their products. And we know that many choices that we make will probably have bad results, and yet we keep making them anyway. So actually, deep down, we're not thinking beings at the bottom. We're desiring beings. Our decisions are impacted not by learning at the root, but by what we want. Uh, The theologian philosopher James K.A. Smith says, our longings and loves are misdirected and miscalibrated, not because our intellect has been hijacked by bad ideas, but because our desires have been captivated by rival visions of flourishing. Rival visions of flourishing. This is what's happening in this passage. The Israelites were presented with rival visions of flourishing. The promise of Canaan, milk and honey, and the lure of Egypt. The prosperity of Canaan, but there's some risk, there's some battles to be fought and won. Or Egypt, yes, slavery, but also, at least it seems, safety. Rival visions of flourishing. And this is what conditions us towards unbelief, not trusting God. When we're presented with a vision of flourishing from the world that seems in that moment better, more tempting, more tantalizing than God's promises. When it seems better for us to find scraps of pleasure in slavery rather than blessings through obedience. But there are consequences to embracing that rival vision. There are consequences to unbelief. What are they? Well, how does God respond to Israel's grumbling? First of all, he threatens to just wipe them out. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses, you're good. Come with me and I'll, I'll make you into a nation, similar to what he said to Abraham. But everyone else, I've had enough, they're done. Fortunately, Moses steps in, as we see, and intercedes for Israel. And so God relents. And, and this is really important, but we'll come back to it in a little bit. But God cannot and does not overlook sin entirely. Unbelief is easily, from our point of view, justified and justifiable. But for God, it's an affront. It's sedition. It's insurrection. And he's not neutral about it. Later on in Deuteronomy, Moses would call God a consuming fire. And even that would be a call taken up by the writer of Hebrews centuries later. The consequence has become one of the most famous plot points in the whole of the story of the Bible. Israel would be forced to wander through the wilderness 
for 40 more years. One year for every day that the spies spent in Canaan. Enough time that, in, that almost the entire generation of Israelites would die out, leaving the joy of the promised land as an experience only for their children. The punishment uh, might seem arbitrary, but it's not. We know that from uh, Romans 1, that one of the primary ways that God judges people is by giving them over to their sins. In other words, we're desiring beings, the way God judges is by letting people have what they want. We saw it just a few chapters back when they grumbled about meat and so God flooded them with quail. Here it happens again, but even more tragically. One commentator summed it up so nicely. Would they rather die in the wilderness than enter the land? So be it. That would be their fate. Would they rather go back to Egypt than enter the promised land? So be it. The next leg of their journey would be literally back towards Egypt, back towards the Red Sea, rather than onward to Canaan. And just to reinforce the irony of the situation, now that God has forbidden them to go forward, of course, some of them try to. Oh, we don't want to go. Oh, we're not allowed to now? Oh, well, we're going. We'll take it. But they go without God, and so they're destroyed by the very giant men that they're afraid of. Brutally ironic. God gave them over to their desires. How does God deal with us? Well, it's important to know that uh, and remind ourselves of how Christians stand before God. God does not and will not punish us for our sins because he's poured out the full wrath of his uh, anger on sin on his son Jesus. And so all who believe in Jesus, even if their faith is as small as a mustard seed, have complete and utter forgiveness and redemption. That price has been paid in full. But God does not allow us for the moment to experience, uh, but God does allow us for the moment to experience the consequences of our unbelief. He wants us to occasionally taste how bitter the fruit of our own sinful desires really are. Not out of anger, but out of love. He does it not to bring us to shame, not to embarrass us, but to teach us. We aren't doomed to wander for 40 more years in the wilderness, but I wonder if sometimes we've certainly felt like it. Because haven't we all felt the pain of pursuing our own desires at the expense of God? When pursuing pleasure far from satisfying has left us feeling empty. When pursuing status far from earning respect has left us burnt out and strung out. When pursuing security far from making us feel safe has left us paranoid and suspicious. When pursuing love far from making us feel unconditionally accepted has left us in the constant fear of rejection. See, the world's vision of flourishing is tempting because it promises everything for nothing. But it, changes, it actually chains you to this endless game of spiritual whack-a-mole. When one desire doesn't fulfill you, you switch to another and then another and then another into an endless cycle that's exhausting and emptying, almost like marching in circles around a desert, 
round and round. And so we know that God allows us to experience that sometimes, to get a taste of it. He, he wants us to be reminded that left to our own devices, we'll always choose Egypt over Canaan. We'll always choose the world over God. We'll always choose unbelief, actually. So if only someone would break the cycle, if only someone would lead us out, if only someone could show us a different path, if only someone could help us take that step of faith, and of course, someone has. There's a way of combating unbelief in a way which fills us with belief, with faith. Let's go back to Moses' response to God's initial decision. Remember, he was going to wipe them out in one go. Once before, God had made the same threat. You remember where? Back at the golden calf. Remember when Moses had gone up the mountain and meantime Aaron and the people were left and they tell Aaron, make us a golden calf so we can worship it because Moses isn't here. When God finds out about it, he makes the threat to destroy them. And in that moment as well, as here, Moses steps into the gap. The fact that it happens twice should wonder, make us wonder, is this God actually out of control, angry, and Moses has to calm him down? Because if it is, that doesn't really gel with our vision of God from the rest of even just numbers, that God is patient and forgiving, infinitely kind and merciful. No, I think actually these moments are far more about Moses than God. God is inviting Moses to step into the role he was called to play, to take up the task he was called to carry out, to pray for his people. Like a defense attorney, he steps in to represent Israel's plight before God, but he doesn't try and justify their sin because he knows it's indefensible. Instead, he reminds God of his own character. And since it seems like this conversation he has with God plays out very publicly in front of the whole nation, He reminds himself and he reminds Israel of who God is. He said, God, remember, you are glorious and you are merciful. Verse 15. If you put all these people to death, leaving none alive, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them on oath. So he slaughtered them in the wilderness. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed. Just as you have declared, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. Moses uh, pleads to God that, that God would be what he has revealed himself to be. That he is the God who desires to show and reveal his power and might to the world. That he desires to show his people mercy and compassion. Was God within his rights to wipe them out? Yes, of course he was. He's the creator. He can do what he likes with his creation. He's a good judge. And sin deserves death. So what Moses is really calling on God to prove is that he is above all gracious. That he gives his people what they do not deserve. And merciful in that he withholds from them what they do deserve. And so even though he will send them back into the wilderness to taste the painful consequences of their sin, he doesn't give up on them. 
His promise to lead them into his vision of flourishing remains. What does it take to combat unbelief? What does it take to anchor yourself in God's promises and to resist the temptation of what Egypt offers? What does it take? Well, Caleb and Joshua say something really important when they protest Israel's Israelites' unbelief. They said, come on, guys. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land. If the Lord is pleased with us. God pours out his blessing on those who trust him and obey him. And this might sound like bad news because out of the 12 and out of actually the million Israelites, only two men in that generation were faithful and trusted and would see the promised land. Only two. So it sounds like bad news. But actually, God's ultimate plan was that the obedience and trust, not of two men, but of one man, would be enough to save generations of unbelievers like you and me. The gospel story, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, plays out like the story of Israel. But it doesn't center on the nation of Israel. It centers on one Israelite, Jesus. In Matthew 4, at his baptism, Remember what God the Father says over the Son as he comes up out of the water? Well done. This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And straight after that, the Spirit sends Jesus into the wilderness for how many days? Forty days. There he was tempted by a rival vision of flourishing. He was tempted by the devil to grasp power and status and comfort for himself. The same things we're tempted to do in our unbelief. But he resisted in every way. He trusted God in a way that no one ever has before or since, perfectly, without faltering. Jesus alone truly deserves the promised land. He truly deserved the glory of even heaven far more than even Caleb and Joshua did. But instead, what happened? His life ended more like those who died in the wilderness. He died isolated and in darkness. He died as the unbelieving ought to die. On the cross, he was barred from the promised land he deserved so that in him the power and mercy of God could be revealed. So that... Uh, because rising to life he called people to trust in him to have faith in him even as small as a mustard seed would be enough for God to say over them over us I am pleased with you and pour out his blessings because in Christ Moses' prayer comes true the prayer he prayed all those thousands of years ago in some ways translates for us today In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people. In fact, didn't Jesus take up that prayer himself from the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So our sins on him, his righteousness to us. Our unbelief on him, his faith to us. When we talk about the faith of Christianity, we talk about our faith, yes, what we believe. But actually, perhaps more than that, we talk about the faith of the faithful one. 
the belief of the one who is unwavering and whose perfect record has been given to us. Church, we are desiring beings. Let's not kid ourselves. We want what we want, and we want all sorts of things that are not God's vision of flourishing. But the way to learn, if I may use that word, to desire God and his kingdom above every other vision, to desire Canaan, to desire heaven, the only way to do that is to know deep down that God is pleased with us and he is with us. The New Testament takes up uh, this story about the 40 years in the wilderness and the writers say, don't harden your hearts like they did. Or how do you soften your heart? By having it captivated by Christ who is faithful to cover our unfaithfulness. To not only understand his mercy and grace, but to experience it and love him for it. And then, and only then, with Caleb, we can say, let us go up and take possession of what God has promised. For he is with us, and he will do it. May that encourage us today. I'm going to pray, and then um, we're going to say the creed together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the faithful one who died as a faithless one, as if he were a faithless one, as if he were us, so that in him through his faithfulness, we might learn the secret to belief, to take the step of faith forward because we look to Jesus who took every step perfectly and whose record has been given to us. May it soften our hearts, not harden them. And may it overflow, Father, as you have shown mercy to us, may we be people who show mercy in every aspect of our lives. Amen.